You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Paul Stephen a professor at the University of Virginia, more specifically the John C. Jeffries Jr., Distinguished Professor of Law at UVA. Um, You've you've, uh, taught a lot and written a lot about international law. You've served in government in various various departments, state defense and so on. Um, And you've written a book uh, that we're um, going to talk about called The World Crisis and International Law. The subtitle is the knowledge economy and the battle for the future published by Cambridge university press. Um, Paul, let me start by telling you why I think the book is important and this conversation is important. And then you can tell me why you think the book is important uh, because you may, you actually may have a slightly different take on it than I do. So I am somebody who thinks that the further evolution of global governance is critical uh, for the sake of the planet. Um, you know, in my circles, kind of progressive circles, probably the most famous example is climate change, which many people consider an existential problem. Um, I personally think there are, as important as that is, there are a number of other issues that are as close to being existential as that is. Uh, you know, um, biotech, you know, whether you want to just prevent the next uh, pandemic or prevent uh terrorists somewhere from genetically engineering and then releasing a bioweapon. I think uh, those, you know, that those things require a certain amount of uh, global governance. You want to prevent arms race in space, war in space that could have cascading effects and lead to nuclear war. If you want to prevent nuclear war, I mean, all of all of these things I think are are uh, are best done with with a certain amount of global governance, and there are other areas. I mean, I could get into AI, you know, cyber war. Um, there's a lot of ways that things could go wrong on a large scale uh, on an integrated planet, and so I'd like to see the further evolution of global governance. Um, and your book is about the fact that uh, things aren't going great for global governance lately, and and. And in particular, one thing that I would call a kind of a sinew of global governance, and and actually here you may have a slightly different take, but I would call international law, you know, a a very important part of global governance and respect for it, a very important thing. And your book is partly about uh, the fact that there's been a certain um, erosion of uh, the force of international law in some realms, respect for international law. now, in addition to all that, you have a kind of a grand unified theory of why international law is in trouble, global governance is in trouble. And, and that that theory, uh, if right, helps explain a lot of things, including the, the rise of Donald Trump, the rise of figures like Donald Trump around the world. So we'll get into all that. It's a very interesting dimension of your book. But let, let me just stop there um, and see if what I've said so far makes sense to you what you would uh, differ with or change or or add by way of setting the context for a discussion of your book. So, Bob, first of all, thank you for having me on. I've been an admirer of yours since the New Republic days, and I oh my God, I'm grateful to be here. So, uh, let me just say, whenever we, uh, it doesn't happen that often, but when we approach somebody to be on the podcast, and it turns out they've already heard of heard of me, it makes my day. And that happened in this case. So, uh, um. But let the record show, I thought the book was important enough to feature before I knew that you were familiar with my work. So, uh, uh, but, but, but well, that goes, so that goes back uh, further than either of us cares to admit, I guess, <laughs> my, my days at the New Republic. Um, but anyway, go ahead. I interrupted you. Sure, sure. So I, I think we should wear our age gracefully. Uh, <laughs> and, and as far as your summary, I thought it was excellent. Uh, I start at the same point you do with a belief that most of the important threats facing the world today are collective action problems that require some kind of management, uh, some kind of of, uh, 
cooperation among states, uh, that we do not live in a world with a hegemon that can fix it all by itself. Uh, and uh, I believe, uh, furthermore, that to be successful, global governance has to uh, uh, rest on uh, uh, fundamental acceptance by all the interested parties. And uh, my concern is that uh, uh, the structures that we erected in the 90s, not the beginning of global governance, but I, I think a significant add-on to global governance that occurred after the immediately after the Cold War, uh, was based on misconceptions about the level of support for the ideas on which that governance uh, and the and the results of that governance uh and and that we have over the course of the 21st century been coming to grips with the growing evidence that uh uh the structures we created aren't really well suited for the problems that we face uh so my approach is not to denounce global governance but to see what we can do to uh improve the structures so that they meet need meet needs sorry uh and as far as grand unified theory, uh, I would just modify that a little bit. I, I have some ideas about threads that I see running through all of this, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't pretend that it is a powerful theory that explains everything. It's not a theory of everything. It's just something that we need to take into account that I think is important that explains enough of what's going on the, in the world that we need to come to grips with it. But mm -hmm. I, I don't pretend that it explains everything yeah and here we're talking about your emphasis on the knowledge economy which we'll get into and how that helps explain some of the backlash against uh well against networks of international elites against uh global governance and 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 against uh the the kind of uh liberal international crusade and 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 so on um the uh and and it's a it's a very interesting dimension so far as i'm aware uh you're um it, it's it's kind of new i mean i, I want to talk about that the connection between the rise of knowledge economy and globalization and the backlash and so on so you know i think especially based on what you just said maybe a good thing to do is start in the 90s and um and talk about how promising things looked then. As we've established, both of us are old enough to remember. Uh, and, you know, the Cold War had ended. You know, the, 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 the part of this that I remember in a way most clearly is the, uh, the kind of dusting off of the Security Council uh, and the actual use of it by the the first Bush administration to authorize a war. Uh, it was the Persian Gulf War. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. So it was a, it was a um, you know, uh, it, the Persian Gulf War was almost on the face of it, a, a legitimate war in terms of traditional international law because he had invaded a country. Transborder aggression violates the UN Charter. Um, but to to really uh, you know go through proper channels, Bush went to the Security Council, and because the Cold War was over, it was no longer deadlocked. You know the Soviet Union could you know wasn't so inclined to veto anything we wanted as it had been once, and so they actually authorized a war, which made it legal, and the war you know happened, and that was just kind of shocking and new to me, and I started wondering, well, are we gonna are, is it possible we're moving toward a world where uh, there's really respect, consistent respect for this part of international law, the part that bans transborder aggression? That's one thing I remember for the 90s. But one thing about your book is it's about all kinds of facets of international law and global governance. I mean, your own background is in tax law, which is, uh, you know, uh, involves more international law than the average person is anywhere near being aware of, probably. Um but but tell me how you remember the 90s, whether you were uh, hopeful and if so, in a way you now consider naively hopeful or or what? So, Bob, actually, I have two backgrounds. I'm schizophrenic intellectually. I, I've uh, from the beginning of my career, I've done tax and I've done Soviet stuff. 
and then Russian stuff. And and uh, those two things came together. Uh, turned out I was both the most and the least qualified person in the world who did both because there was no one else. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, during the 90s, was heavily immersed in projects to help the former socialist uh, countries in uh, Europe uh, and Russia more than any other one uh, to create a tax structure that would be adjacent to a market economy and substitute for the kind of state management of the economy that had existed under the old system. So I was on the ground and uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, I, I uh, was working with a, a wonderful group of people who were economists and tax specialists, uh, not just U.S. Treasury. Uh, uh, my uh, immediate boss there was the then Assistant Secretary for International Affairs, a guy named Larry Summers, and uh, uh, the folks from the IMF, uh, from the World Bank, the OECD, uh, were all in on that project. It was a great team. Uh, and I was the only guy who had spent a lot of time on the ground uh, in the old Soviet Union. I'd been traveling there for more than a decade. I'd been, you know, got my first paycheck as a Soviet specialist back in 1974 as a CIA political anal analyst. Uh, so uh, I was, you know, excited about the enthusiasm uh, of the our masters in the Clinton administration and the uh, a team I was working with. But I was also nervous because uh, I, I felt I knew something about how the Russians had survived socialism by uh, developing workarounds that were based on cookbooks and corruption and bribery. Uh, and, and I was afraid we weren't taking into account the extent to which people there just assumed that's how the world worked. And, mm -hmm. and, and we were uh, uh, selling them structures uh, uh, you know, a uh, disinterested judiciary, for example, which works great if people trust the judges and the judges earn people's trust, uh, not necessarily otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, now, along with that, there was just uh, an explosion of structures, some economic. Uh, the EU, I mean, sorry, the EU was created out of the old European economic communities, uh, the World Trade Organization was created out of the old uh, GATT, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Um, you know, investor protection took off. NAFTA came into the world. Uh, by the end of the decade, we had the International Criminal Court. Uh, and I could go on and on, but uh, mm -hmm. th there was significant institution building based on the premises of international uh, liberalism, as well as a concept of liberal democracy for states. The idea that all the states in the world wanted to be like the United States, whether mm -hmm. they had gotten there or not. Okay, yeah, can I ask you a question about that? Um, you know, I, I mean, I wanna ask you, of course, on your take on, on what went wrong, <laughs> but I personally think what went wrong uh, may be related to a kind of ambiguity in the phrase liberal internationalism. You know, I had John Eikenberry on the podcast a few years ago, and of course, he, he coined the term, I think, liberal internationalism and has written about it extensively. And I said, let me get this straight. Does liberal internationalism, does that refer to the order of uh, rules governing relations among states? Like there should be fairly free flow of trade among them and they should abide by rules and there should be, you know, or does it also uh, involve certain ideas about how states should operate internally, that they should themselves be liberal democracies? And he said, actually, different people use the term differently, <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, that's quite a difference, you know, I mean. Uh, you know, and, and there's a big difference between, you know, at the end of the Cold War saying we want to establish a world of governed by law where relations among states are governed by law and they collectively address problems that they all face, climate, maybe climate change and so on. Uh, and, and, and it's in some sense liberal or whatever, but there's a big difference between saying that and, and, and saying, oh, and also. We think all countries should be like us internally, and they should be liberal democracies 
And if you're like an authoritarian state, that may get in the way of this whole project, okay? These are two very different things. And my own view is if we had focused on the narrower conception of liberal internationalism and seeing that as job one, we'd be in much better shape now. But you you tell me, because I don't think you address that question per se in the book, but it, it is, but you kind of in, in another way do. But, but what would you say about that? So jumping to the bottom line, Bob, uh, I agree completely with you. And indeed, back in the mid-aughts, I got into a public debate with uh, Mike McFall on exactly this issue. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, along with uh, colleagues here at Virginia who had focused on Russia for our careers, thought that uh, uh, American policy, uh, at least one conception of American policy that McFall certainly embodied, uh, uh, misconceived uh, the project by wanting uh, everyone to be like us and, and using that as a criterion rather than uh, identifying areas of common interest where we could work together uh, uh, without getting into the much more intractable issues of our similarity. Uh, I think the conceptual link that led many people to think the two were related was the idea of Immanuel Kant's perpetual peace. Uh, a number of people, I, I, I hate to say this to you, given your loyal Princeton alumnus status, uh, this was really prevalent at Princeton in uh, particular. I mean, you know, important work was done uh, that uh, sought to document that uh, liberal democracies did not go to war with each other. And ergo, if we have more liberal democracies, there will be less war. That was sort of the calculus. And, are, you and talking number, about, are, you, let me just, are you talking about like John's work and Anne-Marie Slaughter and so on? John exactly, Eichenberg, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter is a friend, a fellow Charlottesvillian, and, and someone who I greatly respect. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I, I have disagreed with her from the beginning on uh, well, at least missing the point. I mean, even if the data is convincing, what it doesn't explore is the greater willingness for liberal democracies to go to war against non-liberal democracies, in part because of incomprehension and partly because of frustration that why aren't they with the program? Uh, right. I think the Gulf, uh, not the Gulf War, but the, well, the second Gulf War is a great illustration uh, of that. Well, I'm let me say, I'm a friend of Anne's too, but I disagree with her, too. And I remember, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, it was a small conference here uh, where she was pitching, uh, you know, some kind of League of Democracies thing. And I, I just yeah. want to add Congress of Democracies, Congress, I think. It was, was called yeah. the Congress of Democracies. I just yeah. want to add as a footnote that this has wound up being the governing vision of the Biden administration, you know, or a, a big part of it. This idea that we're in a global war with autocracy, they have this. Well, I forget what they call their League of Democracies. They had some meeting. And, and I don't know how hard they're pushing it, but I, I just want to uh, put this down as a marker that this is very much a live issue. It has real consequence and a vision that you and I uh, don't think is the right vision uh, has, has uh, quite a bit of influence right now, I think, in the White House. Yeah, well, just to add a footnote, academics add footnotes after all. I, I think actually the biggest proponent of this concept uh, was actually John McCain, uh, who who also injected quite a bit of militarism or militancy, at least, into uh, the idea. And, and I actually think, uh, although you're absolutely correct that this is uh, one of the ideas influ influencing the Biden administration, I actually think uh, it is uh, uh, less invested in the idea, partly because there's more reality that's caught up against it mm -hmm. than, say, the second Bush administration was. Uh, so I, I think it's still very much a live idea, but I think it's over the course of the 21st century being ground down a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, there are still people like McFall who I think are uh, you know, completely committed uh, to it, and I respectfully uh, disagree with him. Uh, yeah. Don't get me started on that subject. Yeah, well, he he <laughs> ran a program at Stanford that my daughter thrived in, so I can't be too. Yes, okay. Then then yeah. then any disrespect that's heaped on McFall will come from me. I understand, uh, and, and and I even I will refrain from that for now. I just will say, he seems to be willing to court a certain amount of existential risk at the moment, 
in Ukraine, in the Ukraine vicinity, in pursuit of of the vision we're describing. Um, uh, in other words, he 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 he's he's kind of trying to downplay the concerns that you could wind up in a nuclear war if you're if you're not careful. Um, so uh, let's get back to your story. You you were talking about the the 90s. Um, do you want to continue and tell us how you would uh, characterize what went wrong? So you were concerned from the beginning and uh you were uh how would you how would you characterize the concerns so you thought first of all there was a certain amount of naivete about how things had been operating in in the soviet union the soviet bloc and just kind of the legacy of decades and decades of kind of you know well authoritarian autocratic statist uh governance uh economic governance um what what else would you say about what you you thought were causes for concern or um i mean let me ask you what would you have done differently about the uh, just about the soviet union than was done in terms of our policy with respect to the soviet union yeah well that's tough it's easy to be an academic and and uh, floating ideas when you actually are in the world of policy and particularly when you're on the ground it's much harder so i would say my headline difference at the time was that i believe still believe uh and wrote a lot about this at the time that uh, the west did not win the cold war rather the soviet side lost it that is to say it was a soviet model that proved to be a disaster and and lost the confidence of everybody and Gorbachev's great contribution was from the top to see things weren't working and I continue to revere his memory for that fundamental insight mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, I, I thought that the Washington consensus which uh, the projects I was working on reflected uh, uh, did not appreciate uh, the extent to which uh, the belief in markets, property, uh, uh, privatization, uh, uh, all that depended on a certain social glue, what economists call social capital, uh, that just simply wasn't there. So uh, I would have been, uh, if, if someone was foolish enough to put me in charge of the programs I was working on, I would have just been more cautious. Mm-hmm. I would have gotten more buy-in from uh, our hosts, and in particular, I would uh, uh, one of the things that pervaded those technical uh, assistance programs in the 90s was a kind of implicit deal where we give you travel to the West and computers and you pretend to listen to us <laughs> and you'll even enact laws if we uh, push them hard enough. And and uh, you don't worry about enacting those laws because, you know, you've got workarounds. Uh, that's what cookbooks and corruption are all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would have been much. Uh, uh, less ambitious. Uh, rather than talking about a Marshall Plan, I would uh, be talking about a, a new detente. Uh, I would have uh, tried to find, I, I certainly, uh, one thing that we did early and didn't do enough of and didn't sustain was uh, funding young people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, identifying talent and giving them a chance to, uh, either uh, in the West or through institutions uh, that would be built up, uh, you know, to give them the tools uh, to understand alternate approaches to the world uh, and and seeing it as a generational project rather than a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Let me, um, I want to ask you to talk about when, you know, what the signs were that things were unraveling from your point of view before we we, we do that i want to i want to put a pin in one more point you mentioned the world trade organization and in the mid 90s well first of all that became uh you know it became a thing first of all before that there had been the general agreement on tariffs and trade uh there had been nothing you know there had been agreements uh as a, that's why the, the the a was in there about uh you know about tariffs and so on but there had been no nothing like an enforcement mechanism. One thing the World Trade Organization featured that really got my attention was something much closer to, uh, you know, an adjudicatory mechanism with a certain amount of force. I mean, there was a, a tribunal that nations could appeal to, a kind of highest tribunal, and um, 
it didn't it's not like it sent the police to your country if you you know if you were not in compliance with your your agreements on trade but it did authorize the nation that had brought the grievance if it found that the grievance was valid uh to deploy a punitive tariffs of a certain magnitude so that was a kind of you know sanctioned punishment for violating the law in a certain sense and that was a it was a it was a real threshold that that's now fallen apart um uh, for one you know for one thing the trump administration decided to paralyze that adjudicatory uh, body um, let me interrupt you right yeah. there just to be clear it started on the obama administration was consummated by the trump administration okay. and the biden administration has done nothing to reverse that so that's really a bipartisan policy on the part of the united states we can't hang that on trump as much oh, as we'd like i'm to. disappointed i like to hang yeah. as much as possible on trump um, i get it anyway let, let me just say so th that's part of the bad way of showing how much there is to global governance that's this is another realm I've always thought the WTO was a potentially powerful organization. Like if it became this thing where you said, if you want to be a member in good standing of the WTO, you have to comply with, I don't know, the Biological Weapons Convention or something. That'd be a very powerful lever. But that's me in visionary mode. Never mind. We never got anywhere near that. Um, but that was, as of 95, it seems to me, that was that was kind of a sign of hope. Uh and and now you can first of all comment on that if you want, but 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 if not, then just proceed to tell us like how things unraveled, what the big signs were, and so on. So uh, your characterization of the WTO is exactly right uh, that uh, it created a uh, permanent court uh, that. Uh, uh, what existed before was an arbitration mechanism, uh, but the uh, arbitral opinions were uh, advisory only, uh, while under the WTO, the appellate body, as it was called, the, the permanent court, it was the reverse, that they, uh, its decisions could be reversed only by the entire membership by consensus. So it looked much more like a real court with real judges, uh, a real jurisprudence. Uh, and and I think two things happen, and and this uh, connects to the sense of unraveling. On the one hand, uh, the ninety five the ninety four agreement that went into effect in ninety five uh, was really a take it or leave it deal by the four principal powers: uh, uh, Canada, Europe, the United States, and Japan. And and uh, indeed, what they did is they terminated the gap. So they said to the rest of the world, here's the deal. It's the only deal on the table. Take it on our terms. And and the countries that we now call the BRICS, uh, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, uh, China, and South Africa, you know, accepted, but grumpily. And by 2008, it was clear that no further progress was going to be achieved. There was a, an attempt uh, on the regular schedule, the way this system used to work about every seven or eight years there'd be a new deal uh called a round of of negotiations and that round collapsed uh and it collapsed largely because of a lack of trust in countries in the south with uh the deal that they had been handed that was very western oriented mm -hmm. um so that was one problem and the other problem uh and i think this is a pattern you've seen in the international institutions generally is Facing pushback, uh, the people in institutions acting in complete good faith and believing in the worthiness of their project uh, responded by doubling down. And so the appellate body became, I think, somewhat more ambitious in its claims. Mm. Uh, and as a result, they irritated major parties, uh, you know, including the United States. Uh, the EU had their own grievances uh but but the u.s was much more vocal and and uh instrumental in, in responding to them uh so so my take on all that this, this is sort of the arc of my story is that uh the ambitions of 95 uh, were uh, uh unfounded uh or at least not built for the long haul not built once things started coming apart in the 21st century for a lot of reasons uh, you know, from the second Iraq war through the financial crisis, uh, 
the massive immigration uh, challenges that both the U.S. and Europe have faced, all these things, and many more, the, uh, the going south of the cyber world. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what I, I think we are, where we are now is we're essentially back to where we were before the WTO was created. We still have these panels, and we're still using them, including the U.S., uh, um, and and uh, the United States has asserted aggressively a get out of jail free concept uh, uh, under the agreement of the GATT, the original agreement. National security is supposed to be self-judging. And the U.S. has been the country that is most insisted on self-judging. The Trump administration, you know, showed how that concept can be abused by treating, you know, really economic interests as matters of national security. You know, we don't have enough aluminum and steel. And rather than see that as a market problem, we said that's like being at war. Uh, but that has not been. Uh, so no, we justified tariffs as being uh, as being required by national security and that somehow. That was and under loophole. the language of the GATT, uh, that's off limits. Except the panels all said, well, I, we don't care what the language says. We're going to review this anyway, because what you're doing is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so we so now uh, have... Under, so under, in other words, under GATT, national security is a legitimate reason to kind of evade what would otherwise be the law. The law, it's a loophole in the law. Trump exploited it. And, 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 the, w, and the WTO panel said, no, sorry, this is going too far. It's crazy. Uh, I would add it's not just national security is legitimate, but national security is self-judging. Right. I mean, it says that in the language. It says so, you get to the, each country yeah. gets to decide. Okay, that's exactly. a big loophole. That's a big loophole. And, and it's a huge loophole. And and the way uh, uh, up until this century, the way we lived with it is nobody pushed it because right. they realized it was a threat to the entire system. Right. If anyone has a get out of jail free card, everyone does. Right. And and things can quickly spiral out of control. Right. Uh, but we've crossed that uh, Rubicon. Uh, we weren't the first, but we were the most consequential. And and again, we haven't backed down from that. But and, but and just out of curiosity, what specifically was it that the Obama administration did that led us down this path of, in effect, noncompliance? So the strategy, uh, which parenthetically actually started under uh, NAFTA, but was followed uh, with respect to the WTO, is you have this limited term judicial body. Mm -hmm. I think it's seven years, but don't quote me on that. It, it might be five. And uh, the U.S. has a veto over replacements. Uh, so we started block, starting with the Obama administration, we blocked new appointments uh, uh, to that body in order to uh, uh, call attention to our grievances, and particularly the mission creep that we felt it was guilty of. And and the uh, WTO, rather than negotiating with the United States, uh, tried to turn it into a chicken game, uh, and the chicken game proceeded, and it proceeded under Trump, uh, so that uh, we got from not having a quorum to not having anyone on that right. body. So, so it, uh, so that panel uh, is now completely paralyzed It in effect. The, the, it's non-existent. Yeah. Or um, at least uh, it doesn't have people. It only and, has and, legal and, capacities, but no people to exercise them. And Biden has done nothing, nothing about that to reverse the yep. situation. Okay. So, so proceed then, uh, if you want, uh, or I can ask you another question. If you want to say more about kind of the unraveling before long, we should get to your, what I'm calling your grand unified theory and you're not, but, but, uh, what else you want to say about things going, you know, I have my own story in the realm of, you know, the issue of transborder aggression, uh, which I'll get to sooner or later, as regular listeners know. Um, but why don't you go ahead? Yeah, uh, because because that's not the main focus of your book, although you certainly pay attention to it. You know, the law against against invading countries. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think the first real crack in what we saw is a great new international consensus with the first Gulf War, I mean, I, I would say things started to come apart with the NATO bombing of Serbia in connection with Kosovo. Right. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, further things developed 
uh, after that, uh, by the 21st century, uh, you have Russia uh, objecting to events in its near abroad, converting that into military intervention. Uh, I mean, what from the very beginning of the post-Soviet period, Russia had promoted frozen conflicts on its border. Uh, that's to say security problems that it stoked without letting them boil over into outright war in order to keep neighboring countries off balance, uh, particularly uh, Azerbaijan, Georgia, um, Moldova. Um, in 2008, we had the first uh, actual use of, of armed force in, right. in Georgia. Uh, 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 we, we saw signs uh, from the beginning of the Obama administration that uh, uh, China was not going to be completely uh, silent on security issues. We had the downing of the American aircraft uh, at the very start of the Obama administration, and then the nine dash line is a uh, pretty aggressive claim. Uh, the uh, you know, so and then, of course, the, uh, the annexation of Crimea leading up right. to the current uh, war. And, and uh, you know, I, I happen to agree with you, at least in general terms, about there being shared responsibility uh, and, uh, on the part of the West, or at least uh, a, a sort of a, a, a hubris and uh, inattention that help lead to those conflicts i think you can say that without uh forgiving at all russia's choices mm -hmm. uh and and uh so the you know in the security sphere that's what's going on but my story is there's a similar breakdown of of uh, structures meant to promote international trade and investment of which uh the, uh, the wto is part of that story there are immigration challenges, which have proved to be a real threat to the EU. And I see the EU as one of those 1990s innovations that is under great stress. Uh, my friends in Europe say, but uh, luckily Putin has done for us what Stalin did for the European communities. That is to say, give us a reason to cooperate. And, and uh, you know, people said back in the day that Stalin was the real author of the European communities. Uh, and 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 if the EU survives uh, in the next ten years, maybe we can uh, put up a statue of Putin to, uh, as the motivation for that. But uh, you know that could be. I I I don't pretend to see the future, but I do see a risk that if the EU bails on the Ukrainian war, and more specifically if Germany bails on the Ukrainian war ahead of others, we might end up in a spiral of recrimination. Uh, you know the uh, uh, the poles and the Balts against Germany that uh, might uh, very well put severe pressures on the EU. We do see increasing uh, participation of far right governments in states, not in Germany. Thankfully, we don't like their history with the far right. But uh, 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 you know the uh, Front National in France has been a much bigger factor over the course of the century, even though they've yet taken part in government. We do have. Uh, right-wing uh, governments in uh, many Nordic countries, Italy, uh, uh, you know, Estonia had a, uh, not in the latest election, but before. Uh, so, uh, you know, we worry about the EU coming undone. And then there is pandemics, there is global uh, warming and climate change, uh, and there is cyberspace, all of which have revealed themselves in this century uh, to be uh, uh, reproaches to our optimism about the future. I mean, you can look at the Arab Spring as a point where uh, uh, the color revolutions came to die, uh, where we were so optimistic about the Arab, or at least some were. I actually wasn't, but many were optimistic. This just shows our internet-powered democracy defeating autocracy, and it's hard to look at what's happened since 2011 with respect to the Arab Spring and send. You know, the thugs won, and a lot of the reasons why they won is because their superior surveillance capabilities trump the organizational capabilities that the cyber gave the uh, um, the people fighting from below. Yeah. Um, that, uh, just to touch on that for one second, um, is, is there, 
I mean, to, in my mind, that battle has kind of yet to play out. I mean, in particular, I think it uh, it remains to be seen whether China, in so aggressively deploying the technology, digital technology, to authoritarian ends, is ultimately going to pay an economic price for that. You know, what to, to what extent is that kind of top-down control compatible with prosperity? I mean, I once thought that the answer would be it's not. I'm not so sure, but I also think the jury is out. So, so I don't, I don't, um, and I think that could lead uh, possibly to a loosening. Um, the, the pendulum could swing. I don't know about that. I, I'm curious as to your view about that, but I'm also curious about like, is there anything, um, what what can international law or global governance do about that that particular thing that worries you, which is to say the authoritarian use of cyber stuff? Um, it's not obvious to me that there's a lot you can do in that realm, but. Yeah, so um, I'm actually a, a sunny and optimistic person, even though I believe <laughs> in looking threats in the face. And 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 uh, I I believe maybe more out of a conviction out of conviction than out of evidence that uh, you know top down economic management is not uh, the right solution to any configuration that I can imagine in the world. Uh, and I think President Xi has given us some evidence as to the limitations of top down. Uh, unaccountable uh, decision making. Uh, so I agree the jury is out, but uh, I, I think that the optimism, the uh, you know, the summer love feeling that got attached to the internet, uh, uh, the idea that we would have a new form of of, of popular democracy that would uh, keep the bad guys from. Uh, good people realizing their intrinsically wonderful nature. I, I think that concept uh, um, is there's a lot of evidence uh, right. in validating that concept. Uh, so what kind of compromise do we have? Uh, you know, it will be a challenge. And I, I, I have some uh, thoughts on that that go beyond uh, uh, what's in the book. Uh, um, uh, if all goes well, maybe it'll be my next project. But uh, I would just say that, you know, in general, I would like to see countries uh, exploring ways that they can uh, demonstrate in a kind of learning by doing way, uh, op uh, desirable, not necessarily optimal, uh, but desirable responses to serious problems uh in the hopes that others will imitate them and and to take cyber as one example you know the surveillance problem i think is extremely hard to uh come to a, a collaborative medium with uh particularly because i think there's such a deep tension between the desirability of having big databases and the uh harm that abuse of these databases can uh be used to uh uh you know, allow states to perpetu perpetuate themselves in power as well as to uh, impose tangible harms on people who have things that they want to keep secret and should mm -hmm. keep secret. Uh, so that that's a big problem. But I, I think I, I use as an example uh, ransomware and malicious use of cyber. Um, I can see uh, a consensus emerging, not a universal consensus, but a consensus that some of these things really uh, are not worth what they cost. Uh, ransomware, for example. I mean, the North Korean government keeps itself afloat with ransomware. And and I'm prepared to believe that the their Chinese uh, allies would agree that uh, keeping North Korea afloat is not a legitimate reason for allowing ransomware to be used given what a risk it imposes to an increasingly cyber-connected world. Uh, so we might develop, it, it couldn't be written down in treaties, but we might develop practices where states kind of get a free pass at taking down ransomware act, actors and, and their home states don't get in the way and maybe even cooperate behind the scenes in bringing down uh, ransomware actors. Uh, I can see that equilibrium evolving. Indeed, I, I'd say that maybe we're not that far away from that equilibrium, although this goes on in secret, so we don't know if it's really happening. That's an mm -hmm. example. 
Mm -hmm. So that's an example where you think the solution is a little more normative than legal. Is that right? I mean, at the international level. Right. Um, and is, is is that something that the feasibility of which depends on kind of the state of international harmony? In other words, would you imagine that a deepening Cold War makes that kind of thing less likely? Sure. Uh, so I, I, the way I would put it, uh, I think the way at least some uh, jurisprudence and, and uh, lawyers talk about this is the difference between formal and informal law enforcement and cooperation. Mm -hmm. So if you got a court, you know, that's pretty formal. Uh, and, and, and if you have a system that is enforced instead by tit for tat and, and other forms of cooperation, like the GATT was before the appellate body, you know, it's still law and it's still law enforcement, but it's not the kind of black robe kind of law that we, we sort of see as the center of the system. And, and I actually think, uh, that we pay too much attention to, uh, uh, formal law and not enough to the kind of cooperative behaviors uh, that build social trust. And I think social trust is the uh, fundamental coin of the realm. A cold war destroys cold war uh, 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 social trust uh, because it's uh, a barrier to understanding. I mean, even people of good intention that are simply trying to comprehend the other side are accused, as you well know, of, of actually being the allies of the other side. Uh, uh, so we need less of that. And and more trial by error that demonstrates. Now, I, a wonderful example of this, I think, is the Paris Pact for uh, climate change, you know, where we combine some formal legal commitments with respect to transparency as to what we're doing with complete informality as to the content of our decarbonization commitments. Mm -hmm. Every state can set for themselves their goals. That's as informal as you can get. But they have to be completely transparent about that. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, if you are optimistic and believe there are technological fixes, uh, it gives states an incentive to uh, partially because the fixes can be monetized. They can be sold mm -hmm. to others. Uh, you know, this is an environment that encourages states to explore ways of decarbonization uh, without having the uh, perhaps misplaced incentives of having to meet a schedule set from above that can't be easily adapted to reflect changes in the world mm -hmm. so it 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 on the one hand makes it easier to kind of shame nations in a certain sense uh you know you've established a standard and you could you can say this nation you know failed to meet the standard even though there's no legal compulsion there's no way of enforcing the expectation that they would meet the standard and then on the other hand it's also an opportunity for nations to to be performative in a good way to virtue signal and 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 say and say look we met our standard we're, we're you know and and don't you wish you were like us right i mean that's that's in your mind that's kind of the main importance of things like paris and glasgow uh yeah i would say uh i, I would maybe use slightly different uh vocabulary there i mean the problem with virtue signaling is that it uh implies right. that somebody else is not virtuous I, I would rather say a preference for cooperation and reliability mm -hmm. and and yeah. and so so now this points to one interesting thing about your worldview uh so you say you know a, a lot of work can be done by norms in effect not laws um and uh you know, kind of traditions of of respect for in a, implicitly or explicitly agreed upon rules, um, and really, uh, and and first of all, I mean, I kind of agree that we we should always uh, get as much done without legal compulsion as possible in general in life. <laughs> you know, it's better, uh, but also because the idea of sign of you know th this thing that that you know when you one reason i use the word global governance as opposed to say world government is i don't imagine a, some kind of centralized world government ever ever existing but also that term just freaks people out so so for that reason too you'd like to get as much done without legal compulsion as possible because it it uh legal compulsion gets people worried about national sovereignty and um all kinds of things and, you know, I'm interested in the question of how, how much you can and can't do with norms. 
And and I'm interested in your view of the relationship between laws and norms. For somebody who's written a whole book about international law and kind of bemoaning threats to it, you're actually in a certain sense not a big believer in international law. In other words, um, I think you see it as something that very often, uh, rather being uh, kind of uh, the source of of uh, of compliance or the the thing that you know the thing that forces compliance more a reflection of informal relationships that lead to compliance, if that makes sense. I mean, there is on the at one extreme, uh, you know, in terms of views of international law, there are people who dismiss it as mere epiphenomenon. You, you hear this from libertarians uh, sometimes who aren't big on it at all. And they say, oh, whatever, you're, you know, it's international law is never doing any actual work. If there's a treaty and two nations are complying with it, it means they would have been doing uh, roughly the same thing if you hadn't bothered with the treaty. That's that's one view. I don't think that's quite your view, but you do have uh, a somewhat limited view of this, in a certain sense, the significance of international law per se. Can you kind of clarify what your view is? Sure. Uh, so first, maybe quibbling about terminology, but uh, roughly 20 years ago, I, I wrote another book uh, with my a uh, revered mentor uh, and and once colleague Bob Scott at Columbia University, where we talked about international law enforcement, drawing on Bob's great reservoir as probably the leading contract theorist in uh, America among American legal academics, uh, and and the idea is it's all law, mm -hmm. uh, but we have different enforcement mechanisms, and and sometimes formal enforcement is actually counterproductive, not the least because. A lot of things that uh, on which cooperation relies are not detectable by third parties or when they are detectable, can't be proved to a third party dispute resolver. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, if you're using best efforts in a contract, you know, it's kind of hard to prove uh, reliably what, what best efforts are being used, although a counterparty in a contract can observe and probably tell, even though they can't prove but there are other ways, you know, uh, based on repeat dealing, uh, which nation states are always in a repeat dealing relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you, you, you know, there are ways of building trust, increasing visibility of behavior that don't depend on what I'll call the black robe solution. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I uh, and one way to capture this is to talk about law and norms. That is to say, the norms are binding but they're also sufficiently uh, open-ended uh, that we can't really tell whether they've been met until the future reveals itself. And, and even then, they're very hard to apply by a disinterested person. But we can tell whether someone is actually at behaving consistently with certain norms uh, or not. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's, I think, my big picture image of international law. Uh, so we don't necessarily need the judges and the lawyers to uh, have international law, but I do believe in, in uh, and I also should add, I, I mean, I, I have somewhat Marxist in the sense that I think that uh, base dominates superstructure, but I'm not a pure enough Marxist to think that that makes superstructure irrelevant. Mm -hmm. There is a body of thinking in international relations that talks about uh, the field is called constructivism, and the idea is we don't really know what we think until people think for us. And so the ideas that are expressed uh, give us targets, and and it, it's the th ideas rather than the fundamental conditions that we're dealing with that inspire us to certain directions. Uh, uh, that's not my point of view, although I try and take on board you know, people who see the world that way. I do think that law is a useful tool for building trust. If we've got a target, we can tell whether people meet that target. Mm -hmm. And if they uh, do or don't, we can take that on board and know whether we want to deal with them in the future or not, or limit our dealings with them in the future or extend our dealings with them in the future. So that's the role I think that law takes. And so it is a positive contribution, even though, you know, the underlying economic, uh, social, cultural 
uh, conditions are doing most of the work. I don't think you get law until we're ready for law. Okay. As opposed to the idealists that believe if you believe it, if you build, you know, if you believe in it, it will come. They will come. Mm-hmm. The field of dreams uh, conception of law. I reject that. Right. So a constructivist, what would be a concrete example of something a constructivist would explain in a particular way? Uh, so a lot of the energy in that field, particularly among legal academics, has been in the human rights world. Okay. The idea is that once we come up with uh, a widespread conception of bad behavior, no one wants to be seen as a bad actor. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. that people have a partic- states have a particular preference for or against a particular kind of bad behavior, whether it's fiddling with elections or torturing your adversaries. It, it's that no one wants to be seen as the bad guy. You know, as the the deviant, the outsider, and, and so uh, uh, the more you are convinced that other people view the world this way, the more you will conform to their expectations. Well, isn't that, that just kind of uncontroversially the way norms work, or am I missing something? Uh, so that is one account, but I uh, and I don't think it's controversial that norms can work that way, but. Uh, uh, I think it doesn't. Uh, I think it's incomplete because it doesn't take into account why people might not care how other people think of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, let me give you a, a, a counterexample f- uh, from my world: uh, the anti-bribery uh, uh, practice. Uh, the United States, for over 20 years, was alone in the world in sanctioning bribe payers. Mm-hmm. And and interestingly, we didn't go after bribe takers because that means picking our friends among foreign politicians. Rather, we went after bribe payers and and uh, uh, thinking that bribe paying was a net loss to the world economy. And, and during the Cold War, it also was uh, it fed into our adversaries uh, narrative, you know, that global capitalism was really a corrupting and a manipulative program. Uh but for 20 years, we uh, did that, even though uh, the uh, that meant sanctioning companies that belonged to other countries in ways that other countries thought might not be consistent with international law. But we believed anti-bribery is a good thing, and we're going to stick to our guns. And we were sufficiently successful that at the turn of the century, at the end of the 90s, not the start, uh, there was first a, a treaty and then real practice. It's still kind of limited to a few governments, but it's no longer the U.S. alone. And, and I think the anti-bribery norm has gotten much stronger in the course of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. You know, all that was done without a top-down agreement followed by practice. It was U.S. demonstrating that you can do it, that it's a good thing to fight bribery, uh, and others saying, okay, we'll do that too. Okay. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little about the, uh, what I called your grand unified theory. We've alluded to it, uh, but haven't really gotten into it in much depth. And and that's, that's the thing that, um, explains some of the backlash, uh, to international law, global governance, um, and some of the kind of, uh, nationalist populism we've, uh, seen around the country. And that has to do with, with the knowledge economy. You want to talk a little about the dynamics of that? Yeah, let me be pretty brisk about this and therefore, you know, not going into depth, but, you know, uh, the premise is that uh, we live in a world where talent is increasingly rewarded, where talent is an input in production to a far greater extent. It's always been around in the world, but it's just a bigger deal now. And, 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 uh, for reasons we don't have time to go into now, uh, uh, the economics of knowledge are such that it leads to uh, returns to scale, which means bigger producers uh, are more efficient. Uh, and therefore, we end up in a world where we have at least temporary monopoly providers or something close to it. Of concentrated firms that produce concentrated wealth, uh, which is problem one. And and the other is in a world where we are committed to talent as a uh, a, a good thing. Uh, there is a tendency to say, okay, if you're untalented, you're engaged in bad behavior, 
and and we certainly objectively live in a world where the distinction between the uh, the life opportunities for talented and for untalented people are the gap is growing. Uh, you know, the, to say good things about Princeton economists, uh, uh, Case and Deaton's work has just been very powerful in documenting this. Uh, uh, and among the losers who are populists, uh, uh, now looking at inside uh, countries and particularly rich countries, you know, the losers resent it uh, and they resent some of the commitments of the winners, not the least being the commitment to talent means necessarily an anti-discrimination principle, uh, or at least no discrimination that is not related to talent. But in other hand, on the other hand, uh, discrimination against the untalented is at the core of the knowledge economy, uh, and and that uh, I think is one uh, area where the uh, loser's resentment is being strongly uh, expressed. Another is uh, labor mobility, uh, for lots of reasons, is is an input in the knowledge economy. We want the smart people to go where they go best, and we want poor people to serve them, which often means poor people with insecure legal rights who will work for less. Uh, and uh, again, the untalented see themselves being displaced uh, and therefore, there is a strong anti-immigration component uh, among the losers. So these are two of the factors that create political instability, certainly in the rich West, and I think lurking in the rising South as well. And and you know, instability in the rich West encourages insurgent uh, 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 revisionist, I should say, uh, states in the South to be more ambitious than their claims. I mean, that's a thumbnail sketch of the dynamics that I think are going on. So th this dynamic is, you know, I think already evident to a lot of people as manifest in the United States. You know, you, you have, uh, you know, the kind of driving energy behind Trump consisted in no small part of people that you would say don't don't come out well in the knowledge economy and and people are aware of it in Europe I think uh, of there being something kind of similar but, but you're suggesting that the same dynamic whether or not it's yet evident to people uh is in play around around the world I mean even in China um you you have you know migration of knowledge workers to the city and then you also have migration to the city of people who can meet their needs, uh, who can build their buildings. You know, in America, these would be people wielding the leaf blowers, you know, in affluent neighborhoods and so on. And in America, of course, a lot of them would be immigrants. In China, they wouldn't be. Oh, but uh, they are. They're from the countryside and they don't have uh, full permits to live where they're working. So they are very much in the same uh, legal statuses are undocumented aliens. Okay, legally. So legally, you can be a Chinese citizen and yet, by virtue of the way their system works, uh, not have all the rights we might assume any citizen of any country has? Or, or... Uh, uh, have uh, none of the rights that are associated with the citizen in a social welfare state. Okay. You don't have childcare. You don't have access to, uh, to easy access to the food. You are tied to your employer in a condition of indentured servitude. It's a system developed by the Soviets with their limitiki, the limited mm -hmm. passports, and the uh, hoku uh, system in China that produces the same outcome. So you would expect to see the same kind of backlash there against. Uh, you know, globalization, global governance, uh, you know, um, it may not be so evident in part because now that we have a Cold War descending, um, you know, there's there's less in the way of uh, networking of international elites for them to object to, I guess, and less in the way of uh, forceful global governance. And because of the kind of, you know, nationally unifying effect of external hostility, which is what they see now when they look at the United States. So, this this may not be so evident, uh, and it's something I had never really thought about. I had never really thought about the comparison between this dynamic in China and the thing that got Trump elected. But you're saying we should expect to see a kind of a a global as time proceeds, 
an ongoing global resistance to this particular part of globalization, the, the kind of global governance part. Is that right? Yeah. So I think uh, every country, every political culture is different. And the way these conflicts will be worked out will look differently. And I, I wouldn't suggest that China is ripe for Trumpian politics or anything like that. All I'm what I say in the book is uh, I describe what the world looked like to me in Shenzhen, uh, where I've spent a lot of time and where, you know, the, the China China's uh, export economy first really grew and 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 i if i saw what if i were president xi and i was aware of what i saw all around me there it would keep me up at night mm -hmm. i mean uh maybe we can keep these countryside countryside people who are now engaged in in dangerous and and uh, exhausting uh physical labor maybe we can keep them down but maybe not and how the conflict will emerge is very hard to say. Uh, all I'm saying is that there are tensions that uh, around the world, you know, look at Modi, look at Balasaro, uh, you know, uh, to some extent, look at Putin. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, they are uh, certainly in Russia, uh, the elite hostility of the people who got rich in the 90s is a huge part of the politics of that world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So listen, we've been talking about an hour, and that's usually uh, where I draw it to a close. Now, one thing we've been doing lately is sometimes taking a conversation into kind of overtime and making that part available to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter. And and anyone can become one of those by, by going to the Non-Zero uh, Substack site. And needless to say, um, we encourage it. So I, I'd like to to do that with you. And you've said you have time to, to kind of go into overtime. Uh, but before we do that, before we, uh, we close out the, the uh, publicly available part of this conversation, um, I wanted to give you a chance to say anything else you want to say about the book. I mean, I should say you, you have recommendations at the end. Uh, one of them is don't get too ambitious. You know, uh, you know, there's a certain amount you can uh, hope to accomplish via incrementalism and and so on. Uh, uh, but but anyway, people should certainly uh, take a look at the the book if they want to know how to solve the problem we've described, um, or at least your take on that. Is there anything else you want to say about the book before we uh, before we proceed to part two of the conversation? I think you've summed it up very well, Bob, and I appreciate you're having me on to, to talk about it. Well, you deserve it. Let me say uh, again uh, that it's called The World Crisis in International Law, The Knowledge Economy and the Battle for the Future. You are the author, Paul Stephen. And are, are there other places people can, uh, you direct people to to see your work or? Um, yeah, so I have uh, in connection with the book, I've never written a book like this before. That is to say one for a general audience. And so one of the things I did is create a website, a personal website, uh, which is partly about the book, but it's partly about me. And uh, the website is www, of course, paulbstephen.com. Okay. I encourage people to go there. Uh, I also encourage uh, people, if, if, if they would like to, to, um, uh, you know, uh, join us in the second part of the conversation. Uh, which you can you can do via the the Substack site. But in any event, thanks to everybody for uh, sticking around this long, and uh, congratulations on the book, Paul. Thank you, Bob.